Well, I think that this is a prime example of uh, realities of mom life because this is what it's all about. <clears throat> yep, it's that, well, trying to get them on a schedule versus just submitting to their will. <laughs> totally. Learning that it's just not, it's not just me anymore. So share just a very brief, um, just so whoever's viewing can know exactly you know, what we're getting into with this episode. Yeah. So I'm Kayla. Um, I started my Instagram, the Cole Chronicles. My, our last name is Cole. My husband works for the air force. And right after we got married, we moved away from everybody we knew. And so my Instagram was a way to give people the opportunity to opt into our fertility journey. I know some people who are still on their path to parenthood, it's hard seeing other people's story. So our Instagram was just kind of updating people on what we were going through so that way they didn't feel bombarded on our personal pages. Um, and then it just kind of grew from there. And now um, I work as a doula in Omaha, so birth and postpartum doula work, um, which I didn't get to do during my pregnancy because I had a hyperemesis gravidarum. So I was throwing up, uh, like it could be up to 15 to 20 times a day till, uh, she was born. <laughs> <laughs> Something to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The last time I was sick was, uh, on the OR table and the anesthesiologist <laughs> looked at me and he said, this is it. That is the last time you will throw up. Your baby is almost here. And I was like, okay. And then she was there and, you know, the placenta came out and I was fine. And you haven't puked since. <laughs> yeah. So now we're just adjusting to <laughs> postpartum life after an emergency C-section with um, a high med medical needs um, beginning. And now you're 10 weeks out. Um, uh, yeah, a little over 10 weeks out, yeah. Weeks. And medical assistance still high need or... It's gone down. Nora, um, her, the reason we had to have a cesarean was her heart. We weren't sure. Um, there's just a lot of issues. Um, so we ended up, oh, yes, yes. And her heart is fine now, but, um, her heart was not decelerating and, um, she wasn't passing non-stress tests. Her biophysical profile wasn't looking good. Um, and so we tried to do an induction, but I was so I was still not full term, and um, my body just wasn't ready. But her heart was showing that she couldn't handle um, the stress that uh, labor was putting on her. So we had to have an emergency C-section, and her heart was fine after that. But then we dealt with jaundice and food allergies and more NICU time and tongue and lip ties mm -hmm. and. I would say for her first six to seven weeks of life, we were going to three doctor's appointments a week. Wow, it's so scary. <laughs> it was a lot. It was especially, um, like healing from a C-section is no joke. I had had three laparoscopies, so I was used to um, like one to two stitches worth of incisions on my uterus and my belly button. Okay. C-section does not compare to that. It's completely different um it's a major surgery and so it was really hard 
um, trying to recover from, from that and going and advocating for my daughter at the same time. Totally. Well, I mean, it's like there, it's just, there's, it's just so much. So I can't even. So much. And your husband was around, I hope. I, I mean, cause you know, I saw before that he, you know, obviously air force, you have to travel and. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be, he'll be deploying, um, this spring, but thankfully he, he had some paternity leave and he had some leave saved up and he was able to work from home for a little bit. Amazing. So he was able to attend a lot of it, um, which was amazing. Cause I couldn't like with the C-section, you can't drive for a while. So he would have been in a really hard spot had he not been able to be there for us. Totally. So what do you, cause this is something that I've actually never, um, I know about it like generally, and I've heard, you know, a few stories here and there, but I've actually never talked about it. I'm here with the tongue, the lip, like the things that you went through with her. Um, yeah. do you, are you comfortable going in a little more depth with those or yeah. tell so women can kind of be, I guess, prepared because I feel like what I've heard with that is that women, you know, they're trying to get them to latch or they're trying to, and they don't even know. So they don't, mm-hmm. and it's like, what do you? It was so hard. Um, so the tongue develops at 10 weeks in utero. So her tongue developed and she had her frenulum. So that mm-hmm. right there as connected. And then when your lip flanges off, your lip should be able to go up to your nose like this. Right. Hers could not um, because she had a tie. And when your baby can't flange their lip, they can't form that suction. Mm -hmm. So when she was born, um, I knew about ties and I kind of looked at her tongue and I remember asking, I was like, does it look like she has a tie? I feel like it might look like she has a tie. Um, And what I know now is that you can't just diagnose by looking, you have to do an oral assessment. But they were like, oh, maybe. And um I was just given a nipple shield at the hospital, like some great advice. And I think at that point, um, she was going under the Billy Ribbon lights. And so she couldn't come off for a long nursing session. And if I was spending 30 minutes trying to get her to latch, mm-hmm. she was going back under the lights, not having eaten anything. So they brought me a pump and we started bottle feeding um, just to get out of the NICU with her being able to eat. And so that, that kind of made it harder because we knew um, we knew she could feed from a bottle, um, but it would take her like 30 minutes to finish a bottle. And so when you're thinking about like your time, if you're spending 30 to 45 minutes to get your baby to eat Mm -hmm. ounce and then you're changing them, you're burping them. The next thing you know, it's time to feed them again. You haven't slept. Mm-hmm. So it's just, a, it was just this cascade of exhaustion and not understanding what was going on. And, um, not every medical provider is well-versed in ties. They may have heard of them. It may have come up in their training. Um, maybe it was a paragraph in a lecture that they attended, but you need to have extra training to be able to properly assess. Cause again, you can't just look at it. So you have to have the extra training, do an oral assessment. They should be sticking their fingers in the baby's mouth. They should be seeing, do they flange? Does their lip turn white when you pull it up? Does the tongue stick out? Does the tongue follow a finger sweep? Um, and not everybody is trained in doing that. 
That's so, so weird. Is that you would think it, I mean, all women who come to the hospital have babies have a baby. So it's like, isn't that kind of basic or it's not? It's so, I don't know. I think <clears throat> my thought process is we are seeing a surge in breastfeeding numbers. So the more breastfeeding you see, the more you're going to catch this because a big sign of a tongue or a lip tie is pain when you're trying to get them to latch. Mm -hmm. So if you can get a bottle in your tongue ties baby's mouth, you might think, Oh, they're just a slow eater, but you're not feeling that pain. And you, I don't know how to do an oral assessment. So you just aren't knowing, but now that there are more people breastfeeding, they're telling their doctors, they're telling their IBCLCs like I'm in pain and that's what's leading to it. Mm -hmm. Um, the problem with us though, was Nora was so weak in the beginning. She was very, what they would call low tone that I wasn't in pain because for one, I had a nipple shield and on top of that, she wasn't very strong. So it wasn't like she could actually hurt me. Mm -hmm. Um, versus if I had gone in and said, yeah, I'm in a lot of pain that would have maybe made them think about it. And we've been through a couple medical providers and, the pediatrician she has now says that a lot of people, um, whether they believe <laughs> in ties or not, they'll just clip them so the mom isn't in pain or the mom isn't complaining. Um, wow. Which I don't think is best practice, but yeah, it's crazy. Can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, <laughs> I joined like tongue tie groups. I was so stressed, just looking at everything, crying. <laughs> and my husband finally said to me, he said, Kayla, you can watch as many YouTube videos as you want. You can keep paying for seminars and downloading scientific journals about ties, but that is not going to give the, you the training you need to release them mm -hmm. and to fix this. This is out of your hands. And so that kind of took the pressure off me of feeling like a bad mom. And I started researching um, providers that can release ties. And a lot of them, you can see an ENT, a pediatric dentist, and some uh, breastfeeding medical doctors. And you want to see somebody that is treating infants like every week. Yeah, It's not like a one-time thing. You want to see someone that is releasing ties every week. That's that a specialty has probably. Training. Yeah. And so we were mm -hmm. able to find one of the like top three in Nebraska was um, in Elkhorn. So like the next town over. And I took her in and Nora had a stage four lip tie and a stage two tongue tie. That's, and, it's, and when did you, how old was she when you finally? Oh gosh, she was probably around seven to eight weeks. Wow, what a, it's like seven to eight weeks of just hell for yeah. you and her and your husband for that yeah. matter. And it's so hard with all of her other issues in the NICU it was the thing that was kind of passed over because not that they didn't care, but when we went into the NICU for her food allergies and we didn't know it was food allergies, it was like, well, your baby might need surgery. So surgery on your intestines is going to rank a lot higher than lip and tongue. Yeah. Pie. So I understand like the NICU doctors, they're going to treat the biggest, mm -hmm. most dangerous problem and then work their way down. Um, and so once we got her ties released, we went and started doing, um, physical therapy, 
chiropractic care, and then you have wound care exercises. And the, the thought process behind the physical therapy and everything is, you know, her tongue has been tethered since she was 10 weeks in utero. So her whole body, like your tongue is connected to a lot. So for the entire time she was in the womb, she was sucking and swallowing with a tongue tie. And now she has to relearn how to do all of that. And it's a long process. Um, But I had also noticed because of the tie, she had a head turn preference. She doesn't like to turn her head to the left. And when she would raise her arms, she would turn her head to the right and raise her arms like this. She couldn't raise them parallel. It's crazy. And I remember thinking, like, as a doula, I'm around a lot of newborns, and I remember thinking, like, this isn't something I usually see. Like, this doesn't seem right. And when we would do, um, like, snow angels trying to bring her arms up, her right arm would, you could feel the tension. You couldn't get it up towards her ear. Um, and so since we got her ties released and we've been doing the body work, she's fine now. Like she can, she could eat. This girl could eat. She's actually (laughs) jumped up two. um, she jumped up 2% tiles for her growth curve, um, which is amazing. And she can do, we call them like snow angels and she can flip herself like around in the bathtub and like, she feels you can tell she feels better and it's not it's not just like can I nurse my baby because that was a goal of ours but at the same time I was fine feeding her however she needed to be fed Mm -hmm. but it is convenient being able to nurse her without a shield and it's convenient to have her be able to move around and not be fussy all the time so it was definitely worth it for us, even though it was a very long process. <laughs> well, congrats, because it, I mean, but the reality is, is this is something that will go into childhood, you know, toddler, childhood, adolescent, like, because it is a, it's her body and her tongue, your tongue yeah. is for everything. Like, I remember, yeah. like, even playing sports, you see people, like, you know, you just have habits, people <laughs> stick their tongue out of their mouth when they're focusing. Like my husband yeah. does this when he focuses and I'm like, <laughs> yep. you know, so I'm sure that that tongue obviously is going to be attached to everything. So it's like, yes. thankfully. Wow. And I talked to Elizabeth Morrill, little movers PT, and she's the physical therapist we've learned from. And she was telling me, you know, the tongue ties and lip ties it can, not necessarily will, but it can cause um, speech delays, mm-hmm. speech impediments, and a lot of gagging when they start trying to eat because their tongue can't function properly. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is if your tongue can't rest on the roof of your mouth when you're sleeping, that that decreases um, the quality of your sleep and it doesn't stimulate your nervous system anymore that suck stimulates your baby's system and helps them Mm self-soothe. But when they're sucking, their tongue is hitting the roof of their mouth. So a lot of the, not necessarily sleep issues, but the short naps, the frequent waking, the going to sleep and waking up and still seeming just as tired, Mm -hmm. all of that for Nora came back to the tie. That's so, well, it's amazing that you figured it out. Mama knows. (laughs) Thank you. It was, 
really hard, especially when you're post C-section, you have a new, like just having a newborn in general is hard. It's hard. I don't, I honestly don't think anybody has a newborn and thinks it's easy from the get go. It's just not. It's not. It's not. There's nothing. There's nothing easy about it. I was talking with a uh, a surrogate the other day, and she was said. It's like the funniest thing. It's her famous line. She said, "Believe me, I don't want to take your baby home with me. I want to be able to recover and rest. I don't want your baby." And it's so yeah, true because, like, the this stage is so like that when they. Ugh, I ah yeah, I get you exactly. You're spot on. So hard, and the community. Um, that I often serve um, with my my doula agency is military families. And so a lot of them are not near any family. Mm -hmm. And especially with uh, COVID, a lot of families don't feel comfortable having the grandparents fly across the country to come help them. They don't want to either risk the exposure for themselves or for their parents. Mm So there's this huge population of babies being born to parents who just feel kind of stuck. Like, you know, there is no um, mommy and me yoga I go to. There is no push stroller in the park Mm -hmm. workout session. There's no story time at the library happening. Um, It's very isolating. And so if you're going through these um, issues that are outside of the normal hardness in the newborn life, you might not know. Thankfully, like I, I'm active on Instagram. I have the doula background. So I, w- I was able to say something isn't right and push for it, but you just don't know what you don't know. And since we're not all communicating the way we used to postpartum, um, it's, it's taken a lot longer. It's a lot harder for these new parents it totally, you're absolutely right because same with us. Like we both are transplants to New York City. Neither of us have family here. My family's in Middle America. His is across the across the world. And yeah. only when mine was, I think, seven months old, my mom drove out. Which you know, from Michigan to New York, it's like you know, eleven hour drive, and it's it's far yeah. for my mom to drive by herself. And then my dad, you know, like, and my parents yeah. are divorced, so they drove separately, and it's like. It, it's, it's, I totally, and I think, which is also why I wanted to start this podcast because to have some sort of platform for women to be able to go and know that they're not the only ones going through this. And this, yes. this is relatively common and it's, it's okay. And we can talk about it and, you know, you can leave comments mm-hmm. or, you know, I always give the information of the women that I'm talking with and interviewing and you can reach out to them because obviously you are a mother, but you're also a profession in this, like you're a doula. So yeah, you really do see a lot and you know a lot and you actually, you know, you're knowledgeable. This is your profession. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very, um, I think reassuring, especially in this time, because who knows what's uh-huh. going to happen. And it's so funny you say that about not having the mommy and me groups. We constantly talk about it because it's so sad. There's not yeah. any sort of nothing virtual. And it's like, okay, like what is my little, you know, my five month old going to do with a virtual zoom class? 
Right. And can you virtually hold my baby for me while I go pee by myself for the first time in three days? No. Not going to (laughs) happen. You know, it's not the same. And I think now we're starting to become as a society honest about hard things. And I know um, I love watching like Working Moms or The Letdown on Netflix. And both of those shows are based around these different stories of women who met in the mommy and me groups. So in my mind, while I was dealing with infertility, a huge part of, I think, the parenthood fantasy was the community that I was going to get. Like, I was not going to be the random person who knew a lot about babies but couldn't relate on a, like, heart level. And so now I'm like, oh, yay, where's my mommy group? Where's where's my funny, quirky friend? Where's my working mom that wears a suit? Like, you don't have that. Like, Nothing. I'm not on a Netflix show. I'm by myself still. It's crazy, right? And yeah, and it just makes me, it makes me sad. And it also makes me hopeful that when the world is safer, when things are progressing again, we'll remember how deeply we needed this connection and then we can give this connection to the next generation of postpartum women i hope truly i absolutely i couldn't agree more it's it's a weird time like that's kind of it yeah um so what other type so she dealt with or you both of you dealt with um the tongue tie the lip um nick you the um, breast, sh- the shield with breastfeeding. Um, yep. What else that you, what else could you um, suggest or kind of helpful tips that you've been through with her? Um, definitely finding an IUCLC that helped a lot with the nursing stuff. Um, Nora also dealt with food allergies. That's um, I, yeah. I was gonna. That's I couldn't remember. Yeah. Okay. So we were hospitalized for jaundice, and I think a big. Again, I don't have a medical degree, but I think a big component of why she became so jaundiced and why it wasn't going away was because she was um, an ineffective nurser. Like we did a weighted feed with an IBCLC and in 45 minutes of nursing, she only transferred barely an ounce and a half. It's crazy. But and this is pre- that was this is when that was, that was yeah. So imagine spending 45 minutes nursing your baby and you're still full and I was an overproducer. And so I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. My baby is asleep because she's just worked so hard. And then she's right back up because she actually isn't yeah. full. And so, um, I think that's why we struggle with jaundice so much. And then when we were about to be discharged from the NICU for her jaundice treatment, um, cause it was days, it, it had gotten really bad. Um, she had a diaper change. Her nurse brought in the discharge papers in her hand. Um, and I'll never forget like the look on her face when she opened Nora's diaper and it was just blood. And she like tossed the paperwork on the counter and was like, I'll be right back. And like immediately brought in the pediatrician. And from there, it was just a cascade of events of um, what is going on. And we were, I think the hospital we were at was like a level three or four NICU, 
we ended up having to be transferred by a critical care team to Children's, which is a level five NICU. Wow. And they had done, they had x-rayed her, a big concern they have. Um, and again, doctors see the worst. So they, at that point, when you're in the NICU, they don't want to jump to the easiest conclusion and send you home and have something bad happen. Um, and so we were preparing for the worst, which was um, necrotizing intercolitis, basically where um, part of your GI tract, your bowels is dying, it's necrotic, and you have to have an emergency surgery to remove it. Um, and because her x-ray at the first hospital wasn't um, confirming or denying that, the transport team had to come and take Nora and... Sorry, I'm getting so emotional. I would say, um, just you're, I, you're holding together so well. You're making me feel like I'm going to break down any second. Um, due to COVID policies, um, they put her in the emergency isolate in the back of the ambulance, and we couldn't go with her. So she was alone. Like, she was with the transport team, and they were amazing. Like, I can't speak highly enough about Nora's care team, but nobody mama's her the way I do. Correct. And so we're sitting behind the ambulance the whole way there sobbing because neither one of us is with our baby and she's in this isolate. Nobody is touching her. Like, and we're just frantic. Cause at this point we think maybe we're getting to children's and we'll be going into surgery. Um, and thankfully that wasn't the case. Um, her pediatricians, the whole team there, were just so on it with like immediately they were like this is what it is they paused um nutrition so for two days Nora didn't eat she was on IV fluids and then eventually they added in intralipids um but she had a tube her stomach was drained in case they had to go in for surgery um and there is nothing there is nothing that can prepare you for sitting next to your baby for two days engorged, listening to your baby cry out of hunger and not being able to feed your baby. And My your body was just keeps so confused. Yeah, I bet. Oh, wow. And so I was, I was pumping while I was there and I actually would have to leave the room because I wouldn't stop letting down. Mm-hmm. I would start to be finished with pumping and she would cry and it was like three more ounces the second she cried. And so I would have to leave her to pump. Um, and it was just so hard. And at this time, I'm still very newly postpartum with a C-section incision. Um, I think I had been, it, it was like day four of being at her side in the two NICUs. And that morning, my husband came and went to pump because only one of us could stay the night. So he went home and I went to pump and the nurses pulled him aside and they were like, we need to talk to you about your wife. Like we've, and they're amazing, but basically they said, you know, this is our job. Our job is to take care of your daughter, but we're also here to support you guys. And if you look around, you'll see no other parent spent the night last night because your body can't handle it. Like your wife has been here for four days. She has a C-section she needs to shower. She needs to make sure it's not getting infected. 
she needs to leave your daughter's side and sleep because every time we did rounds, every time she was x-rayed, every time she cried, your wife was up and at your daughter's side. And that's great, but your mm-hmm. wife isn't going to make it through postpartum if she doesn't go home. And I hated them so much for their honesty and for looking out for me. I hated them. When I came back and my husband said, at the end of the day, we're going home and you're coming with me. And I've never been so angry in my life. Um, But it had to happen. It absolutely had to happen. And I have no doubt in my mind that I would have ended up in an, in an ER bed on my own from lack of nutrition and from infection if I hadn't gone home and showered and actually taken care of myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, no, I can't we, even imagine. Ooh. It was awful. So we had to spend that night and then the next night away from her. Um, and that was terrible that you have a number and a secret password. So you can call as many times as you want and they'll give you updates. Um, And one of the nights that we were gone, one of the CNAs made like a scrapbook page of Nora. And so we came back to like pictures of Nora and it made it, that is what let me go home the second night was seeing that while I was gone, they weren't just doing their rounds and doing their jobs. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like they, they were going above and beyond it wasn't like, oh, I'll check on the baby every three hours because that's my job. Like, they were in there holding her, checking on her, taking pictures of her, writing messages on the board for encouragement, like, answering the phone every time I called them and giving them updates. And I just, like, I could never be a NICU nurse because I couldn't handle me. Oh, my God. Well, and it's it's coming from all sides, like. It's, I mean, it's just thinking about a baby having to, like, they're just so helpless. And not only that, but you worked so hard to bring her here, Earthside. Like, that's a whole nother thing that you've talked about before. You, you know, you, yeah. so I don't even think we need to go into that, but (laughs) it's like, have everything you've gone through and then having this is like, what do you know what's what is the point like yeah it felt like and I said when you're pregnant with your rainbow baby it's kind of this holding your breath waiting for the other shoe to drop like what's gonna go wrong when am I gonna lose this one and for me I started to go to that place was well now she's here and I love her more than I've ever loved anything so when is she gonna be taken from me or when is, mm-hmm. when am I going to fail her? Um, and that was really hard. And that's kind of the place I was at in a NICU. And so coming out of NICU is a whole other healing. Like there's your postpartum healing mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. And then there's your NICU healing. And it is a lot. Part of being a doula is, especially a postpartum doula or even a birth doula, we do a postpartum visit. Either way, um, we check in with our clients. We help them reprocess their birth story. Um, we listen to them. We have, you know, basic understanding of infant feeding and can give them the resources they need. Um, but even with my own doula, my Mariah was my doula. We were together. Um, 
and she was like let's get that postpartum like let's check in on you and I basically told her I was like I can't even talk about my birth or my postpartum healing because I am so focused on the NICU time and and that's all we did that's all we talked about was the NICU and processing like how did that make you feel like what was going through your mind and Mariah kind of helping me get resources to make us successful on our own Mm -hmm. because you do get used to the constant nurse care and being able to see my daughter's stats. Mm -hmm. And the first night we came home, I texted my doula and I, I texted Mariah and I said, I'm just supposed to close my eyes now. I'm, I'm supposed to trust that I can go to sleep and my baby's going to keep breathing without a monitor telling that. And I was like, I can't do that. And working with, okay, well, we need to find a way for that to happen because you have to sleep and finding solutions and whether it's the outlet or hiring a postpartum doula to come hold your baby all night long or sit by your baby all night long so you can sleep um, and going to therapy and talking about like what makes you think she's going to stop breathing. Like she's never had respiratory issues. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't a fact that I was having worry about. This was something that I was having anxiety and obsessing about. And so that in itself, like handling that, getting through that. And like, just now we're starting to go back and process the birth because we've finally put an end to the NICU chapter. Good. Congrats. That's a big chapter. If you want it's way behind you. It's been a hard one. It's, um, I can't even, I remember we have friends who have a little one who's, um, a little over three months older than ours and something that the mom, she texted me saying, you're going to have all all these sleepless nights and let me just tell you, I'm going to try to save you, you know, I'm going to try to gain you a little more shut eye and save you a little stress. You don't need to stay up at night. You don't need to check if they're breathing. You don't need to go over and hover and, you know, put your hand to make sure that you feel they're fine. <laughs> and it was so funny because I initially, I didn't know what she was talking about. And yeah. then only when you go through, are you like, cause you know, there's those nights where you just give them a little nudge or just to make sure. And you're like, like I just want to sleep, but I can't. And yes. you just. It ended up for a lot. We've just now stopped, but her bassinet is in our room next to our bed. And my husband would sleep with the baby monitor on because I was sleeping next to the bassinet. So he wasn't as close to her. He would hold the baby monitor. So if she made any noise or if he woke up at night, he could look at it and immediately see her breathing and see that she was okay. And that was like kind of his way of being like, look, she's fine. Okay. Like, this, it might sound, I might sound crazy because she's in the same room as you, but like, that is what we had to do to totally. get our rest. Yeah. It's on, well, at least you didn't get two twin beds and put her in the middle in the bassinet or something. <laughs> Stuff like that. Imagine. I was feeling from my C-section. He slept on the couch. I slept on the recliner. She slept in the bassinet between us. So you, you got close to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like this, um, you and your husband have really figured out, figured it out. And I don't, I feel like it, I don't know what it is, but a lot of women that I talk to are myself included. It's such a weird process with the husband because 
And maybe it's because of your embryo, your trans, all the adoption, all the stuff leading up to this. So he, you know, went through so much more with you at first hand and you guys openly communicated, you talked about it where it's almost like, and with us, for example, I was just pregnant and I, you know, it was easy and that was it. And so my husband has zero understanding of hormones or sickness or anything. And I, I just think, how can I make him understand? Because he truly doesn't. And I think that it's a lot of men, unless they really experience that hardship with women, because we're just so, they just don't. Yeah. And my husband has said that fatherhood really for him still kicks in when he holds the baby. Um, We, that's my, that's my hair. Sorry. We, before we had Nora, we uh, pursued domestic infant adoption. And so a woman made an adoption plan and part of her plan was we were going to be the adoptive parents if she went through with her adoption and she, her circumstances changed and she was empowered and became able to parent her own child. And which is amazing, but um, we did meet the baby we were at the hospital, um, kind of taking care of the baby while she was in the hospital. And so it still was hard. Like we were so happy for them, but it still was hard. And Nathan said, um, you know, when you're actively doing the work, that's when he felt connected. And so then when we went through IVF, while it was my body doing it, he kind of helped with the injections. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of he's doing the work, he's bonding. Um, but he said there was nothing that made him feel more like a dad than when she was here. And so I think because we feel it or the birthing parent feels it for so much longer, mm-hmm. um, they don't, that there's not that understanding. There's not like he didn't throw up 15 times a day. Thank goodness, because we wouldn't have been able to handle that. Like, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's different. And I think Nathan and I, because we have been through some traumatic events, um, we work really hard on that communication of saying like, um, well, I grew Nora and I had a C-section. Um, so her NICU time is harder on me. Like we didn't have that competition. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew like this is hard on both of us for different reasons. And there's no way it's ever going to be equal because it's so different. Like, you know, I'm healing from a C-section and watching my daughter. He is watching trying to take care of his wife meet all of my basic needs Mm -hmm. and her needs and be the sole financial provider of the family I don't know what that responsibility feels like Mm -hmm. so he's never going to know what a c-section feels like and I'm never going to know what the financial burden felt like for him and just understanding that you know our experience is going to have to be different and just not trying to compare it I think has really made it easier. Like we really don't try to do the comparison game. And if we start to, we talk about it. Like I'll tell him, like he came home and like was in something at work and had to shower before he held Nora. And I was like, I haven't showered in three days, but like you just came home from work and you just hopped right in the shower. And like, I'm covered in vomit. And I kind of hate you. And saying that instead of just being passive aggressive all day, he was like, okay, well, 
let me shower so I'm safe to hold Nora. And then I will hold Nora for like two hours and you can shower and nap. And then like come back and maybe hate me a little less. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I recently, cause we have a puppy also. Oh my gosh. Which, oh. True. Honestly, my husband brought him home a month before I found out I was pregnant, but I didn't know I was pregnant. So it's been, it's interesting because he's actually more work than my daughter. Thank, like, thankfully he's the most needy little huge. He's a pit bull. So he's huge, but he Aww. thinks he's a puppy. He thinks he's a lap dog, but he's so needy. He'll sit on the window and cry because he wants to go outside and that, whatever. But, um, I was thinking the other day, when, am, when am I going to take a shower? When am I going to poop? When am I going to do anything by myself? Because now my daughter's crawling and he has to come in the bathroom with me. So I have a whole party going on in my bathroom when I'm trying to go to the bathroom before I, like, it's like, I don't, I don't remember last time I took a shower by myself. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's. Join the club. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. And I tell parents all the time, like, it's hard. And part of the reason it's hard is because we care so much. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, what, because. I know because I obviously, and this is why I'm so curious, but you, and I think that if you give a little insight and I don't want to spend too much time on it. Cause I know you've done other podcasts you talk about on your Instagram, but other things that you've done to try to get pregnant, you were young when you learned, um, mm. about your, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you tried to do adoption. You tried to do all these things. Tell me what things you try to do because I do think that yeah. it there's hope right like there are so many different options um and it took for you to get this option to find the mm -hmm. option that worked and unfortunately everybody is so different like I I tell people time if there was a pill or an oil I could slather on you to get you pregnant I would be telling you about it but there's not we tried like from the moment we started trying, we were doing ovulation prediction kits. There was like a fertility bracelet that tracked your data. There was the um, ovulation sticks. There was the basal body temperature. There was the clean eating. Maybe if I only eat out of glass instead of plastic. Maybe if I stop eating takeout. Maybe if I stop eating meat. Maybe if I go to acupuncture or lose weight or gain weight or try Clomid or do like we had three laparoscopies um and then we had like a uh sauna histogram like basically looking and seeing like okay well the endometriosis has been cleared out you're there's not a lot of scar tissue in your actual uterus so you should be able to carry a baby we don't know why and then finally like oh there's a baby and then nope like and we must carry very very early um honestly we probably wouldn't have even known about it except for the fact that we were trying so we knew um most people wouldn't know we were like five weeks um and so it yeah and so then well why can't we get pregnant again and doing all of the blood work testing all of the hormones um and i had a really bad reaction to clomid which it um stimulates like um your ovaries and kind of helps those follicles grow and so we knew IUI kind of includes follicle stimulating hormones. 
and there wasn't a sperm count issue so an IUI they were like well we can't really tell you if that would even be helpful um and for IVF you're still doing a lot of stimulating hormones and we weren't sure since we were kind of just unexplained at that point if that was our option so we started with domestic infant adoption and then after the um disrupted adoption is what it's called so after she chose to parent and got to yeah. um, raise her little girl we decided we needed to take a step back from that because we just didn't feel like we could be all in for another baby yeah. in that way yet and that is when um i learned about embryo adoption and we found um basically when other couples do ivf and they have extra embryos um and they've completed their family, you have options of what you can do with those embryos. And our um, snowflake family is what we call them. They chose to, um, it's a transference property. So basically transfer the embryos to us. That's and very, that's it's, how um, so it's, I don't, I don't know if it's, I think it is. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is it essentially the same thing a surrogate does? Yeah. Okay. It's the exact same thing a surrogate does, except we keep the baby and um with a surrogate there's paperwork stating that the embryos are still the property of the intended parents got it but so for us that property mm-hmm. the embryos had already transferred over to us so they were our embryos to do whatever we wanted with and it was my body and we could have taken the embryos and then also hired a surrogate to carry them mm-hmm. um but i was able to carry and have this little nugget <laughs> amazing it's a wild, uh, it's, I just can't wrap my mind around it, how there's so much advancement in technology. They can yeah. do this, that, and all these things, yet some things they just have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy what we know and then compared to everything we don't. And um, Nora was frozen for almost 10 years. Holy cow, almost 10 years? that is incredible. so there's like a whole decade where time stood still for us to find it. yeah and that in itself is a miracle well and you know you went through other situations where maybe this is yours maybe it's not and clearly she was meant to be yours yeah it's a wild thing with this, because uh, I don't, I'm not so familiar with that. I know a few women who have done it where they freeze the eggs, the, the embryos, the eggs. You can freeze either, but yeah, she's an embryo. And how long can they be frozen for? Um. So there's been a successful live pregnancy of an embryo frozen for over 20 years. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Once they're cryogenically frozen, they're they're not aging, nothing is changing. It's just whether or not that embryo will survive um, being thawed for the transfer. Got it. And there are embryos that are created and they're only like a month old and they don't survive the thaw. So that's kind of just, we don't know why some survive the thaw and some don't. Well, I guess it, the, the, one, the word that I learned is the quality. Like, yep. but not quality, like good or bad quality of just, the, I guess what it's composed of. Yeah. Cause she had, um, we had four embryos that were, so her and three others and the twin embryos that we were set to transfer, they did not survive the thaw. 
Um, and then the third embryo was damaged by the company and uh, the shipping company and died. Mm -hmm. So we lost, literally lost that embryo. And she was the very last embryo out of all of the embryos that her genetic parents had created. Mm -hmm. So she's the beginning of our chapter, but she's also the very end of their fertility chapter. She's the very last one. Um, so it's interesting how that door, you know, is now closed for them and just now opening for us. And their kid, how old are their kids then? Um, I, they're, they're to. in elementary school. Okay. So, okay. I, yeah, we try to stay vague about it just for yeah, the privacy. Are you, and I guess it goes like, so a surrogate that I know, and obviously she's a surrogate, so she carries the baby, she gives the baby back, but mm. they're all open about it. They, they know, and you talk about this in the other episode where you guys are open or you will be yeah. with her and the other babies know. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like that's really the way to go. Like, I think it would be super detrimental to a kid and, you know, attachment issues or whatever, if you keep it a secret now. Yeah. Um, there are, so because we had that adoption background first, a lot of our thought process comes through adoption. Um, you can make embryos with donor egg, donor sperm, your own eggs, your own sperm, you know, like there's so many different ways to create embryos. Um, but listening to donor conceived people and listening to adoptees talk about the trauma of finding out, um, and how that for some of them, they've never spoken to the parents that raised them again, Wow! because that, that wow. trauma, that divide was just a chasm they can't cross. Um, and so we really listened into them. And what a lot of donor conceived people are saying is they want to know their medical history. They feel like they have a right. And a lot of adoptees are saying they have a right to their medical history and to know where they've come from. And that it, there should never be, when they look back, there should never be a big sit down where they learn their story. Mm -hmm. It should be just a part of their life. And yeah. so that is our goal as parents um, and what we personally think is best. And her family, her siblings, they all agree. Like they all know. Um, one of her sisters just told us like when we went in to get our beta testing um, to find out like, were we pregnant and staying pregnant? She was like, I think um, her number, cause we were guessing what my beta level would be. Um, and she said, I think it's going to be a 67. And the very last embryo I was frozen with was a girl. <laughs> what? Just, just like, by the way, when I was <laughs> just frozen, so you know, <laughs> 10 years ago, that last one, that's a girl. She's having a girl. And we didn't know that. Like, you can find that out, but they weren't tested. So we were like, oh, a girl. Like, you, you're kind of like humoring her. Like, mm -hmm. you're like funny kid. And then my blood work came back. I was 65. It's only two off and she is a girl. So. <laughs> it is incredible. Okay. And I, you know, it goes doing this parent thing, like adulting is different than parenting. And yeah. it really just goes to presentation, right? So instead of having this big buildup and making it so scary, I really do think that that is something, you know, you're onto something in so many aspects of just, making it casual and not having the talk. And it's yeah. like, it really makes you wonder. And I mean, for me being a mom now, I think forward and I think, well, how, how do we have the talk? 
or Mm -hmm. about like, you know, sex or this or that or whatever. And it's like, well, if you incorporate it into a daily life, like, you know, when they're little talk about, you know, this is your body and these are your parts or, you know, I just feel like there's something that's really missing. And we, I talk about it in other episodes, but I just feel like being a mom, there's so many things that's just about how it's presented. Yes. Yes. And I, I used to be a teacher. Um, Mm -hmm. I taught elementary school and I would tell parents, um, teach your kid before I do. Yeah. (laughs) Tell them your version before I do, because I'm going to, you know, come from my walk of life and what I teach them, you may not like, like if you're, if your kid calls another kid gay and doesn't understand why that's upsetting, like I'm going to have that conversation. Like we're going to talk about what the actual word gay means and then they're going to go home and tell you that. And so I'm like, you know, maybe you have that conversation first in case you don't like what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and I think that having these conversations, like I w- there's not like a checklist when you get your pregnancy app, there's not a, a child app where it's like, okay, did you talk about consent today? Check. Did you talk about, you know, loving who you love? Check. Like there's no list that keeps track of these huge conversations. You as a parent, like all that pressure's on you. <laughs> it is. It's so true. And it's, it's almost like it only mounts greater and greater pressure as they get older. Yes. It's crazy. <laughs> um, I was talking to a friend and she said, like, we were talking about this and she was like, my kid stopped in the middle of a soccer game, went to their coach and asked their coach to tie their shoes. And it was in that moment that I realized I forgot to teach the third one how to tie their shoes. <laughs> And I just laugh so hard because that's parenthood. Well, and it is. And it's like nothing about it's easy. No. It's just such a process. Yeah. Um, hold on. So I have a question now about, so you can theoretically find out what the sex of the baby is in just an mm-hmm. embryo. Yes. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's a PGT or PGS testing. So they biopsy um, the kind of surrounding cells of the embryo, which those cells end up becoming the placenta later on. And you can test them and find out about um, chromosomal abnormalities, things like Downs, um, the sex of the child, um, different genetic traits. um, And it costs money. Like, I won't, I won't lie. It's like $5,000 for some places per embryo. And so, that's, you guys paid that per embryo? Or that's for the testing? It, and their family didn't do it either. But Got we it. have friends who have done it. And for them, they had, um, I can't remember what it was. And they'd already experienced it. So basically, like, they would get pregnant and then they would have a late miscarriage or they'd have a stillbirth. And it was because of a chromosomal thing. So they went through with the testing so that way the next time they got pregnant, they would kind of have that peace of mind mm-hmm. to know. Um, and so, yeah, there's, and there's a lot of different theories about the grading of it. Like I could spend like seven hours talking about PGT testing and PGS testing and the quality of embryos and all the science. It's again, like all the stuff we just don't know yet. Yeah. And with, I'm assuming it varies state to state, obviously country to country, insurance to insurance, whatever. Generally, mm-hmm. if you, you know, you knew the family before you got the embryos from them, or you only met them when you were trying to get the embryo? 
Um, we met when we were exploring what embryo adoption was. So we met them, we bonded, and then this happened. <laughs> and <laughs> thankfully. And typically, how does that work with insurance, payment, all that kind of stuff? Um, so insurance just kind of sees it as IVF. So some insurance companies will say, okay, routine blood work, ultrasounds, we'll cover it. Some will say, oh, it's not routine, it's fertility related, so we won't cover it. Um, so it still kind of varies. Um, but once the once you are confirmed pregnant, everything becomes a a pregnancy expense. So once we're pregnant, that ultrasound is no longer a, coded as a fertility ultrasound. Mm -hmm. It's coded as like a pregnancy ultrasound. And then it starts to become covered. Got it. And were you able to see them shoot her in you? you yeah. Were. It's cool, right? <laughs> it's so cool. My husband actually had to work that day. So I traveled to St. Louis with one of my best friends whose family is from St. Louis. And so it was just a room full of women and we're watching the screen and my, my friend Abby recorded it so she could show Nathan, but you can see the actual moment that little snowflake just goes. Whoop. It's so cool. And it was like, it's, so it's really <laughs> funny to me. Um, people, strangers say like, the most uncomfortable things but when people are like oh you know what causes that you know what causes pregnancy i'm like well for me it was thousands <laughs> of dollars and a reproductive endocrinologist or when people say well what gets the baby in gets the baby out and i'm like my female doctor is gonna get the baby out and have to have another embryo transfer to get her out of me like i just become very literal about it like mm, i don't think I got this baby the way you think I got this baby. <laughs> well, you know, I'm reading more and more statistics and it's like one in six or some, it's a crazy number that's, you know, made in a Petri yeah. dish or whatever. And it's yeah. like, you know, having these advocating and sharing, spreading awareness, sharing what's happening obviously is only good and can benefit yeah. people who are ignorant or have no idea or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But it is so true because when you're in these mommy and me groups or they're in kindergarten or whatever, you don't know where that baby came from. Like you, yeah. and it doesn't matter, but I think that it matters when people say stupid things and you're like, okay, well, hello. Yeah. And I know for me, had we had genetic children, like we have, like I have depression, anxiety, um, in my family. And so we would have said to like our child growing up, like that's something we would have monitored for. Mm -hmm. Or like, if you have diabetes in your family, you kind of watch your child to see if they start or like asthma, you start looking for those symptoms. And why don't we do that when it comes to fertility? Obviously no one is telling your six year old, listen, when you start trying to have kids, watch out for this. But at some point, you know, your child becomes an adult and they sh deserve to know if something is going to impact those mm -hmm. adult choices. Yeah. And so I just wish even inside families, you're telling your child, yeah, it was really hard to conceive or yes, I had this, or even if it's not genetic, just letting them know, like you struggled with it, mm -hmm. it will make you the person they go to. And it will also prepare them a little bit more. Yeah. You're totally onto something there because I, I, I'm not sure, but it almost seems like our, this generation that we're us, our age group, we're the ones who are opening up and talking and really trying to mm -hmm. discuss. 
where maybe yeah. our parents and up, they are less communicative and they are less mm-hmm. because like, for example, I had a um, episiotomy in during labor and my, my mom, I didn't even know what it was. My mom had <laughs> yeah. three of them. And I said, oh, mom, goodness. why didn't you tell me? And she was like, because I didn't want to scare you. And I said, a little, like, you didn't want to give me some warning? Like, yeah. and it's like, you're absolutely right. Like, maybe we have a similar frame and a shape, or maybe it just so happens that I had a, you know, the doc, I don't know, but it would have yeah. helped to know because my OB obviously would never tell me about that. So maybe you could, because you had three of them with each of us. Yes. Yes. And I think like we as a society are deciding like, and we also, now we have more research, we have more data, we have um, more like social anthropological studies around shame and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't. But I think as a society, and I know especially like our generation has decided like, okay, this used to be taboo. It's not anymore. Mm-hmm. It's it's not. Like you're not going to shame me for this. I'm not going to feel less than because of this. Right. Like we're done. That's canceled. And I love that for our kids. I think it's going to make it so much easier for them. A hundred percent. I hope. I mean, and I feel like all we can do is just keep, keep communicating and talking and sharing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I see it's a, it's a pendulum. We see parents swing to the different extremes. Mm -hmm. Each generation has an extreme about something and then they kind of center. So maybe what we're really passionate about raising our kids whether it harms them or benefits them, maybe it'll be the exact opposite with the next generation. And it just keeps going. Pretty much. <laughs> um, well, I feel like I we could talk and I could ask you a zillion questions because you are <laughs> so knowledgeable when it comes to this stuff. Um, instead, I'm going to definitely send people to your Instagram page um, yeah. and your blog. So I'll include links for that here. Um, anything else you want to share? Anything else you're working on? Um, just, uh, if you're in the Omaha area or you want virtual support, um, my doula agency is, well, it's not mine, but the the doula agency I work with is the Omaha Baby Nest. And so this year I'm starting back up at work. And one of the things I'll be doing is teaching childbirth education and newborn, newborn education, both in person and virtually. Amazing. Cool. So hopefully give some parents some knowledge before they're in the thick of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. I'll include a link of that here. Um, and that's it. Thank you for your time and good luck with the little one. She's Thank adorable. You. Keep uh, keep on She's keeping on. <laughs> this is the, uh, the peaceful moments of the day. Yes. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Kayla. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. See Bye. You.